Okay, I'd like you to, uh, as we begin, to think back in your life and seek to remember if there's ever been a time where you've been in an argument with somebody that went on long enough, down enough rabbit trails, and sort of through enough byways that after a while you could no longer remember what was it that we started out arguing about in the first place. I mean, you know how these can sort of go, at least I assume most of you do. You know, you're saying something and then you make an overstatement like, well, you always say that. And then they say, here we go again, Mr. Superlative. And you go, I don't do superlatives. I never do superlatives. <laughs> when was the last time I did that? And then they say the time at the beach. And you go, the beach? I don't even remember that. And you never remember. Well, there's a superlative and it's just, right? It's around and around and around and around and... 10 minutes later, 15 minutes later, hour later, you, you can't remember what, it, what was the problem in the first place. Well, I mentioned that to you because we've been in 1 Corinthians for a little while now. Uh, this is the fifth week in this year's effort, and we preached through it about seven weeks last year. So, We've been in 1 Corinthians for a fair amount of time, and Paul has been making an argument. And the argument has, by this point, looks like it's going from one issue, and then it's going over to another issue, and another issue. And if we're not careful, we may lose a sense of the beginning from the end, or we may lose a sense of what is he really arguing, merely by nature of the fact that the thought is traveling. And so what I want us to do, the way we're going to start this morning, we will eventually get, by the way, to the ninth chapter of 1 Corinthians, which is where you might want to open your Bible to. But I want to walk us there, and I want to walk us there with a cursory uh, view of the problem that in the church, the problem that Paul addresses. And in order to do that, I'm going to start in the first chapter. So Paul's writing this letter to Corinth. And in the 10th verse, he starts to get to the meat of the letter. The the 10th verse of the first chapter is actually the third sentence of the letter. So the letter is from Paul, sentence 1. It's to the Corinthians in nice stuff, sentence 2. Sentence 3 is content. Okay? And the problem is visible in the very first sentence of content in the book of Corinthians. This is what it says. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. That there be no divisions among you, he says. First sentence of content in this letter, Paul says to them, it really would bless me if you could get along. And he goes on to build this out. He says in the verse 11, hey, I'm hearing from Chloe that there's a lot of quarreling among you. And what I mean when I say that is some of you, this is verse 12, one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Is it possible? 
Is it possible? Can you imagine being Paul, having ministered in this church for over a year, and to hear somebody who you, to whom you gave the gospel come out and say, well, don't worry, Paul, they follow Jesus, but I follow you. Can you imagine what, oh, that would, how that would take the wind out of your sails, that would make you feel like maybe you failed? In this church, it seems as though what people have done is grabbed onto the, the teachings of various teachers as though they're adversarial or as though they're distinct in and among themselves, rather than that they're co-laborers laboring and ministering towards the Lord all the, all the while. They're friends in ministry, giving teachings that are supposed to be received and sort of internalized in balance. But they're not really about inhabiting the teaching, they're about the teacher. So some are in the Paul fan club and some are in the Apollos fan club. Even though Paul and Apollos have been working alongside of each other. I don't know of a lot of obvious ways to point this out in I mean, I think one of the reasons it's not so obvious in our church is because our church has some health in this area. Uh, but, you know, one way you might see this is in a Bible study is someone who's, I'm more of a James guy. I like the book of James. Someone else is more of a Romans guy. You know, Romans, you're justified by faith. James, well, so you know you're not justified by faith but by works. As though, they're, as though they're antithetical to one another, as though they're adversarial with one another. When in fact they sort of have, they've backed up to each other and they're fighting the same fight. Just to different corners of the church. That's sort of what's the first tip-off that there's something wrong here is infatuation with the teacher over the teaching or pridefully engaged with, oh, I now have a piece of knowledge that you don't have. I have, a, I have a better teacher than you have. Okay, That's what comes out right the moment the letter starts. By the end of this first chapter, Paul is trying to call them back to humility. He's trying to remind them of who they once were. So he's going to end up saying, remember, not many of you were wise like the world. Not many of you were powerful like the world. Not many of you had noble birth. But God chose you for that very reason. You who were not, he chose and brought in so that he might glorify himself. That's what he ends up saying. I think I got a slide for this, Ryan, if you can advance it. Just these teachings of those you weren't, and he says, but I've chosen, God chose to breathe life in you to give his, his name glory. In other words, you have people in the church who have received grace, the grace of the Lord, and yet they've forgotten what they received from him, and they've actually now begun to sort of glorify themselves, celebrate themselves. And he's trying to call them to humility. In fact, it's at the very end of this chapter that he calls, he warns them against boasting. He says, it is not good that you boast. And if you're going to boast, you should boast in the Lord. There's division in this church. 
And there's boasting in this church. Hold on to the word boast. It's going to show up again and again. That's the very first chapter. This is the third chapter, just to show you how the argument continues. In the third chapter, Paul says this right in the beginning. He says, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. He's saying, I, I wish... I wish we could dialogue as though you were living in the Spirit, but I can't do that because you're not living like you're living in the Spirit. In fact, in verse 3, he says, because you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, one of you is saying, I'll follow Paul, and another following Apollos. There's jealousy and strife. That's been building up. And it's in these factions of, of who, who do you belong to. And Paul goes on to say, what then? He's trying to def- defend his work and he's saying, what is Paul and what is Apollos? We're nothing but servants. He doesn't say who is Paul and who's Apollos. He says, what are we? We're nothing but servants. We're simply trying to serve the Lord. In fact, He talks about their cooperation. He says, I planted, Apollos watered. At the very end of this chapter, he says this phrase, let no one boast in men. It's not about that. You have the situation where Paul and Apollos, they're giving their lives away because of the goodness and the greatness of God. And the very lives that they're giving away, traveling and sharing and dealing with persecution, it's landing on people who are squabbling over who's writer, more rights, or who has rights to do what, and, and who, who has uh, a better teaching, and... Uh, well, this teacher authorizes us to do this, doesn't he? If there's, it's all of this labor from these godly ministers is falling on people who are sort of using it the wrong way. This is how the fourth chapter deals with it. This is uh, chapter 4, verse 6. He says, I've applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us. And his goal is, is that none of you would be puffed up in favor of one against another. Do you see that? Puffed up deals with boasting. One against another deals with division. This is the problem. Here's the big idea. Here's how I might say, uh, I might summarize the problem in this church. This church involves, has a people who are using the gospel to their own ends as opposed to being used by the gospel for God's ends. Okay? It's a group of people who are manipulating the teachings of God to take, take for themselves, rather than being sort of taken over by the implications of the gospel. They're they're using the gospel or they're using the teachings to advance their position or advance their statement or advance their desire or what they think is rightfully theirs. 
It's a church that's very much driven by what do I have a right to? What am I allowed to do? What am I authorized to do? You might think of it as a person who, I just want to give some examples of of how this might sound. I mean, I have, in counseling, been confronted with someone who says, well, doesn't the Lord want me to be happy? Don't I have a right to be happy? Okay, you might say this is a church full of that. Uh, someone, you know, who they are often angry or critical, but it's because they're in the right. It's always, it always happens to be righteous anger or holy indignation. There's a sense of, well, I see it how it should be, which is why I'm telling you how you should be. And just a sense of, well, this is the Bible. It's a church full of that. That's the problem. Now, the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians sort of deal with describing the problem. And then chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, and we're going to turn into 9 today, they sort of show specific examples. So Paul's going to look at all throughout the life in the church and say, there it is again, there it is again. And it's going to sound like the argument's moving away from the problem. It's not for Paul. Paul's saying the problem shows up here. And the problem shows up here. So the, cha- the fifth chapter begins with something like this. It's actually re- reported that there is sexual immorality taking place among you, the kind of which the Gentile community would not even accept. Your sexual immorality is edgy even for the outsider. And he says this, and you're proud about it. You're boastful about your liberty in the Lord. He says you should be mourning. In fact, right later on, a few sentences later, he says, and you're boasting. Why would you boast about this? Later on in the, the, the next chapter, he begins with this one. And I hear another thing. I hear that one brother is taking another brother to court. He says, there's a squabble or a dispute between you, and you're going, you're taking it to the court, and you're actually adjudicating your case outside of the church, in the public square. He says, it blows my mind. He doesn't say that. He means that. He says, already this is a moral failure. And suggests, hypothetically, why not just be cheated? Why not, why not endure the injustice? In other words, you care so much about what is rightfully yours and, and the things that you, you have the right to have that you are shipwrecking this fellowship. And you're shipwrecking your relationship with one another. And it's happening beneath the eyes of God. If it were me, I'd be cheated. I would just accept the cheat, he says. Why not, why not just endure the injustice? In fact, he follows this with, don't you remember who you once were? You see, he sees their pride, and he tries to bring them back to who they were. Don't you remember who you were? Some of you were idolaters, 
drunkards, liars, thieves, sexually immoral, homosexuals, all these sorts of things. He gives this long list and he says, such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified by our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember who you were. And then the next, the next thing that comes up, chapter six, later on in chapter six, don't I have a right to do what I want with my own body? It's almost as though he's responding to a question in a letter. They quote, everything is permissible. You know, my spirit is with the Lord, but my body's on earth. Can't they just make my, do what my body wants? Can my body, my body has needs. You know, food for the stomach and stomach for food. And he says, your body is not your own. It was purchased at a great price. It belongs to the Lord. But do you see the problem? Don't I have a right to do this? And he's saying, if you understood what had been done for you, you wouldn't ask. This hat carries, that's chapter 6. Chapter 7, you even have people who, in order to be holy, are leaving their marriages so they can be holy and single. And, and Paul says, you think you're doing a good thing, but you're actually doing greater harm to your, to your spouse. Don't you realize you're not your own. You've been given to them. Your body's not your own. They have authority over you. Chapter 8. Don't I have a right to eat what I want? After all, it's just food. It's just food. It's, there's really only one God. He, he says, listen, regardless of what it is, even though that food is nothing, your brother is something. And you're right to eat whatever you want can't come at the harm of your brother. The problem. They think that exercising their freedom is what makes them Christian. And Paul is saying, no. Exercising your freedom is not what makes you Christian. Freely loving your brother is Laying your life down for him. You know, I, I, most of my life I've heard, you know, laying your life down for your brother. I've heard it in sort of a soldierly, military way, like taking a bullet for him or diving on a hand grenade. I really don't think that is the way it feels in real life. I think it's small and subtle and in tiny little ways, like laying something down here for them, quiet, ways that no one will ever notice. You're never going to get a purple heart for this or a medal for this or recognized for this. It's you realizing, you know, I have a right to that. I could have that. I sort of think I'm justified in having that, but why? Because if I step in and claim this, this brother over here or this would-be brother will not get it. So I'll just lay that down. That's what I think. I think the vast majority of yours and mine laying down our lives is untheatrically quiet. And that's what Paul would say, that's the Christian life. And so finally we get to the ninth chapter. And the problem is the same. The problem is a church in which... For the Christian, it's more like the old, the, old, the old man in us using the gospel rather than the new man in us being used by the gospel. 
you might think of it this way, that in this church, they're still behaving as though they're slaves trying to enjoy, using Jesus to gain freedom. Okay? Rather than people who have been freed by Christ, who are now giving their lives to the Lord, like enslaving themselves to the Lord. That's the problem. And it's with that that we turn to uh, the ninth chapter. And, and I, the reason I wanted to st- take that all the way here is because as we get into the ninth chapter, we're no, he's coming back to the deeper problem. So he's leaving issues and he's bringing us back to the heart of the problem. In fact, the very last sentence of chapter 8, uh, and he makes a switch. So in chapter 8, he's talking about what they're able to do. But in the very last sentence, it, brings, it makes it first person singular. He says, If food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. In other words, if eating meat is going to make him stumble, I'll, I'll give up meat. I'll never eat meat again. I don't need that freedom. And he heads into nine. Now, there are going to be a lot of, this is a highly rhetorical portion of his letter, okay? So this is where he's dropping it on them, so to speak. And he's going to ask a bunch of questions, actually almost 16 questions about. He's going to be asking, all of the answers are assumed. So he's not asking a single hard question, okay? If you're taking a test, even right now, just write yes, and you'll get 100% on this quiz. Okay? The answers are so obvious because he's, he's, he's charging the argument. Okay? So you have all these people who go, I have a right to things. I have a right to this. I have a biblical right to this. This food is biblically neutral. There's nothing about this food. By golly, because of Jesus Christ, I can eat this meat. Okay? That's the argument he's dealing with. To which he says in chapter 9, I'm just going to walk verses, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship. So he's saying to a group of people who are caught up with their rights and their needs and what they ought to have. He says, well, listen, if you have a right to stuff, let's talk about my rights for a second. I'm free, right? And in fact, not only am I free, I'm an apostle. I've seen the Lord Jesus. I was called by Jesus. And for those people who still think, well, Apollos, maybe, but you, he says, even if not everybody there thinks I'm an apostle, the church should acknowledge my apostleship because the only reason there is a church in Corinth is because I came. If you're a real church, then I'm a real apostle, is what he's saying. And then he carries on from there. So the next step, he starts to build his case. Let me just read three through six, a bunch of more questions. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we have the right to eat and drink? He's talking about him and Barnabas. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? There's a custom 
the custom in the church, the religious custom was a teacher has, the teaching comes, when the teaching is brought to you, sort of the payment is food and board. So someone brings and comes and ministers among you, you're supposed to house them and feed them. And he says, hey, if I'm an apostle, which I've already obviously demonstrated, if I'm an apostle, do I not, do Barnabas and I not have this right to the food and drink that would be available to somebody who's ministering among you? Not only for ourselves, but for our wives if we were to bring them? It seems that you seem to accept that all the other apostles and the brothers of Jesus and Peter and Cephas have these rights. Do we not also have these rights? These are rhetorical questions. The answer is obvious. Don't we, don't we have a right not to work on the side to make this possible? Is it really Barnabas and I, the only two ministers of the gospel on the face of the planet who don't enjoy this privilege? To which you might think at this point, someone would say, well, yeah, you have that right, but you don't take it. And he would say, yeah, hold on to that. I'm coming to that. And now he's going to say, not only do I have this right by virtue of the fact that I'm an apostle and it's customary treatment of those who minister among you, but I have this right based on natural law. Look at verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense, right? What soldier pays himself to go to battle? Or who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some milk? He's saying everywhere else in the world that you look, everywhere else, you assume when someone's laboring, they have due recompense. They are reimbursed for their labor. Everywhere else in the secular realm, you look across the marketplace and you say, someone labors, they get paid. And then you say, within the fellowship, the custom has been those who minister get paid. And we all acknowledge that, particularly for apostles. Am I an apostle? Aren't I? That's, the, that's his path right now. But he's not done yet. There's more. He's going to say, it's not just natural law. It's biblical. Look at verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? Verse 9, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God's concerned? He's, like, he's, he's saying, really? Do you think that God was really worried about the cow? He's giving this for us. Look at this. It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. And he sort of, he brings it now. He, he makes himself a spiritual farmer. It's really eloquent what he does here. He says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even have more? Now, at this point, I think a listener of this letter, I like to think of like a young person in the church of Corinth listening to this and then thinking, yeah, you do have that right, Paul, but you never took it. Like you never once took it. You never once said, hey, you know, working two jobs is pretty tough here. You never said that. Not one time in all the time you were with me did you ever take from me. And Paul would say, yeah, hold on to that a second. 
Let me read through 14. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Now that's the thought. But he's even going to back it up with one more argument, one more sort of... And another thing, right? Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should make their living by the gospel. So he says, hey, I'm an apostle. Don't, apostle. don't those who minister among you and bring the gospel have a right to food and drink and to bring their spouse and, and to not have to work? And he says, isn't that the case in the natural world? Everywhere you look, that when you see someone laboring, they're compensated for their labor. And he says, and doesn't the law of God, the Torah say it, the teachings of Moses say it? And then he says, and didn't our Lord and Savior Christ also say it? Like, look at the way of the priesthood, first of all, in the picture of Scripture, but Christ himself is the one who said, to the worker is due his wages. When he was sending out the 12 and sending out the 72, he said, hey, don't take a lot of money with you. When you go somewhere and you teach and they take you in, remember that teaching? He's saying, didn't the Lord himself already lay this down? But I haven't taken it. Never once did I take from you. Now we get to 15. In these next several verses, we're going to just walk through carefully because he's going to say something in 15 that's kind of hard to figure out and we're going to, then we're going to sort it out. He says this, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. He's saying, I didn't take this right and I'm not writing now to say you owe me $1,000. Okay? It's not a bill. He says this, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Now this is the frustrating part, right? All through this letter we've been told, don't boast. It's not good to boast. Stop boasting. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. And it's not as though the letter's unraveling now. I mean, the letter goes on for a lot more chapters. So, and he's going to still talk about boasting. So chapter 13, we're going to learn about love. Love does not envy. And what else does it not do? It does not boast. All through this letter, there's this carefulness of boasting. And now he says, I'd rather die than lose the opportunity at this moment in this teaching to deal with the, your problem and forsake my opportunity to boast in front of you. What does he mean by that? He clarifies it in 16. For if I preach the gospel that gives me, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. He's saying, what I don't mean is that I can boast by virtue of the fact that I'm your preacher. He says, that was God's calling to me. It's my job. I don't, have a, I don't get an award in heaven for doing what God told me to do. He says, in fact, if I don't do what God told me to do, I'm scared. So when I say I want to boast in the Lord, it's not because I'm this great apostle, Paul's saying. He says, that's not it. I'm just doing my job. In fact, he says, even if I don't like doing my job, I still have to do it. This is what he means in 17. For if I do this of my own will, 
I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with its stewardship. You can like to do your job. That's great. But even if you don't like it, you got to do it. So he's saying, I'm not waiting for a trophy that says, good job, Paul, because I preached the message to you. That's not what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about boasting, I'm talking about something deeper than that. And it's the 18th verse that gets to it here. He says, what then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge. So as not to make full use of of my right in the gospel. He says, my payment is not getting paid. My reward is not accepting the reward I've earned. My compensation for ministry is in refusing compensation for ministry. So that you know that the gospel's free. That's what he's saying. It's a way, I think he uses the word boast because all through the letter, he's been challenging them on their prideful boasting spirit. And their prideful boasting spirit has been anchored in what they're able to take on account of the gospel. Doesn't the gospel give me the right to have that? And doesn't the gospel give me the right to have that? And can I also have some of that and two of that and three of that and half of that and two of what you, can you give me some of what you've got? They're using, they're leveraging all of their rights in the gospel to swell their rotting carcass of a body in this world. And he's saying, you're boasting in that. You want to see what I boast in? I boast in what I'm al- I am now allowed to let go of because what I've received from Christ. Like, I'm unpacking my bags for the kingdom of God, and you're swelling yours under the same name. You're saying, I follow Paul, and yet you're hoarding this earthly attitude of like you're enlarging your earthly personhood and boasting all the while while I, because of what Christ has done for me, am letting these things go. Let's just ask how this might be us. Let's close with these thoughts. How might this be us? So I ask a few questions. Is there some right that you have that God might want you to scrutinize a little bit? You know, something that you know you're due more love in your marriage. You're due more respect at work or by your children. You're due, uh, you have a right to more pay to be heard, to be understood? Is there something, something that sort of needles you? Like, you know, the little devil on the shoulder kind of going, you really should have gotten more than you got there. You, you're a better person than that. You, you, is that? And I, some of these, particularly if you're sort of a subtle type B, passive aggressive person, that might not be, I want to be careful here, it might actually be the God's word to say, you need to say something rather than just bury it into the furnace like of your soul. But I just want you to scrutinize. Is there some right or privilege that you think you have a right to that the Lord would say, see that? Lay it down. Lay it down. Lay it down so that one day they might look at you and say, you know, you had a right and you never took it. I don't understand that. Like now that I see your life, I go, 
you never asked, you never asked, even though you had a right, why didn't you do that? And when that happens, then you get to do what? You get to tell them about the love of Jesus. You get to say, well, let me tell you what has happened for me. And he has not asked for recompense, has he? He has not demanded payment in full. He's not waiting for the bill to be paid. There is so much that you and I have received that has not been, I have, if, if I receive the bill for my forgiveness, it will be a tragic day. Like, my great hope is that it will never come. I think we do this naturally as parents. Those of you who understand parenting know this. Um, so on Father's Day, invariably some child will say to me, and some child close in my household who comes from my loins, will say to me, Father's Day? Well, when is Kids Day? Okay? Now, mostly it happens now as a joke. It happened for real once. And now it can only happen as a joke because what happened then? (laughs) And why do I say that? Because you and I both know that every day is kids' day. Right? Every day is kids' day. Even on Mother's Day and Father's Day, we know that's still like simulated Mother's Day and Father's Day. You're going, oh, thank you so much as you labor to make their treatment of your Father's Day noble. So every day is Father's Day. I just want to say this because as the parent in us, the nurturing parent in us intuitively understands this principle, how we subtly in an unrewarded way lay down things that we rightfully have claim to, don't we? I mean, any nursing mother knows that child has never said thank you at three in the morning. You, right? You... Just the desert of thanklessness. As you're laying your life out quietly and calmly, not like jumping on a hand grenade, but just hour after hour, moment after moment, there's things that you have a right to have. You, you have a right to sleep. You have a right to this. And if you, if you harbor these right things, you start to get bitter. Why don't I get this? Why can't I have that? Why? But parents, when we're parenting, somehow it just naturally happens. There's this natural way of being able to give away, and you sort of trust one day that that child will be like, Mom or dad, thank you, right? And when they do, then there's this respect and, and this friendship. I think we do that naturally as parents. I don't, think, I don't think we do it naturally as people. I think to brothers and sisters, we don't behave that way naturally. To would-be brothers and sisters, we don't behave that way naturally. I think there, as peers, we have a keen sense of what is rightfully ours, and we begrudgingly lay things down. And God would say, we must not be that way. No longer we must not be that way. Because one day, we long that people will say, you know what, you could have had it, and you didn't, why not? And then we tell of him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, make us this way, we pray. We need your help. How can we come to you in prayer, Lord, without feeling the need for help, Lord? And so we trust when we pray to you that you are the great answer of prayer. And we, we feel that when we come to a father and ask for a good thing, that the answers are yes in Christ.
So Lord, we come to you, not because we have a right to, but because through your great mercy, you've invited us. And we ask you for a good thing. Lord, may we not be users of the gospel, but fully used up by it. May we not take take for our holy selves, Lord, but rather be taken over. May we do for brothers and sisters and people what a parent does for a child. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.